Father, we come before you today, and we're so thankful for the way that you've taken care of us. Uh, we're thankful for the opportunities of ministry that you've given us, and just pray that uh, this ministry would continue to expand. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us today and teach us and guide us and show us what you want us to learn today through this lesson by Jacob. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, please. We're continuing in the book of Exodus, chapter 12. Chapter 12. We're still looking at the final of the judgments on Egypt, which we began last week. We'll recount some of the things we talked about last week and then press further. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. According to the rabbi's reckoning, this present year, 2023, we are now by the Julian calendar, is 5783 by the Hebrew calendar. The problem is the rabbis begin tabulating New Year from the Feast of Trumpets. They call the Feast of Trumpets the head of the year, which is in September. Rosh Hashanah, meaning head of the year, Rosh, head, Hashanah, head of the year, Jewish New Year. They begin to count from the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Tru'ah, where we can see, of course, here in the Torah that the first of the year is the first of the month of Nisan or Aviv, the first of April. Now, this is important in itself, but it's not our subject tonight. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. Now, remember, the Antichrist will seek to change the law and the times. Seek to change the law and the times. You had fiddling with the characters with the uh, Julian, Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. You see, Islam has its own character beginning with the... Uh, of Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. Notice every false religion tries to, in some way, change time, alter time, alter the way the time is counted. Now, that's, again, not our subject tonight, but it, that verse is in this text, so we have to take note of it. Bearing in mind, of course, that Mosaic Judaism, Levitical Judaism, is ordained and established by God. Talmudic Judaism is the corruption of it. So too, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and so forth are the corruption of biblical Christianity. Christianity, as the New Testament teaches it, is ordained of God. What was done to it, that's something else. But note, and then, of course, Islam comes along claiming to be the Third Testament. Notice all of them, all of them play with time in some way and the way the time is counted, okay? Um, this is not a major feature for most of Christian theology, but it is an important feature when we study the last days, what people call eschatology. It is important. It is a factor, okay? And it is also important when we look at Chapters such as Daniel chapter 9 of, of the, seven, of the uh, 70 weeks. We have to bear this in mind. Again, I only point it out because it occurs in this chapter. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, On the 10th of this month they are, one, they are each one to take for themselves according to the father's household, the lamb for each household. 
Again, as we looked at last week, God is in the business of saving families. That was true in the case of the rescue of Lot. It was true in the case of the Exodus. It's true in the saga of Noah. And it will be true in the last days. Building up families in Christ is vital. Building up marriages in Christ is vital. Yes, he's coming for individuals. Parents will turn against children, children against parents. That is going to happen. It happened to a degree with Lot, didn't it? With his wife and his sons-in-laws and so forth. But it ought not happen. It will happen, but it doesn't have to happen. At least it doesn't have to happen to you or to I. Building up families and marriages in these last days is crucial. Christian marriages are under attack as never before. Christian children who grew up in the faith are backsliding as never before. And it's affecting family after family after family. Now, these things have happened before, but not on the scale that they're transpiring now. Once more, verse 5, your land shall be unblemished. As we said, to God, one man without sin is worth all the men with sin. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Notice the sheep and the goats. We talked about this last week. Both the goat that's chosen for the Lord at Yom Kippur and the lamb are for atonement or for atonement. People talk about the blood of the lamb. They do not talk enough about the blood of the goat. We have a teaching um, in which we deal with this, a, a video, uh, and it's on the Moria website, in, in which we, we deal with, with the contrast between Passover and also uh, Yom Kippur, okay? The, the blood of the lamb and the blood of, of the goat. Uh, I would refer you to it. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, that's Passover. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it into two doorposts on the lentil of the houses in which they eat. Now notice there's a distinction between an assembly and a congregation. An assembly and a congregation. We tend to not draw a distinction between the two terms, but in Hebrew, there are two different terms. When you have the term congregation, it's the idea of to congregate. It's when all the nation had to come together for the pilgrim feasts. All the nations had to come together for the three pilgrim feasts of which Passover is the first. Okay, Passover being the first, followed by Feast of Weeks, that is Pentecost, of course, as another pilgrim feast, and then the Feast of Booths at the end. These are pilgrim feasts where there had to be a congregation. They would congregate. The whole nation would congregate when possible. Okay, assembly is different. An assembly can, can be where two or more are gathered in my name. Okay, so the whole assembly of the congregation, that is everybody now, okay, is to kill it at twilight. The blood of the lamb is for everyone. The blood of the lamb is for everyone. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat. In other words, they shall make a bloody cross. The, in England, bloody is a very profane term, so I'm trying. America, it isn't. You can say bloody in America and it doesn't mean anything. In England, it's a profane term, but uh, I'm not trying to be profane. 
um, a cross of blood. Yeah, I don't know how else to put it. A shape of a bloody cross, okay? The blood of the lamb on a bloody cross, okay? It goes on. Take some of the blood, put it on the doorpost and the lentil, and they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Again, the idea of the herbs invokes the tears, the tears that they wept in Egypt. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. All of it was to be destroyed and consumed. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. Whatever is left over, you shall burn with fire. Jesus faced total destruction on the cross for our sin. He faced total destruction. He took the wrath of God for our sin, for you and for me, upon himself on that cross. There was a total destruction. He suffered in body, mind, and spirit. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet. That is getting ready to move out. Getting ready to move out. Um, we talked about this briefly last week. The good and faithful servant gives the proper food at the proper time. Now there's certain things we know. It was at the Paschal Seder, the Passover meal, that commemorates this that the Antichrist type, Judas, the son of perdition, was revealed. That the son of perdition was revealed. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And it's a frightening thing. We deal with this in the book, Shadows of the Beast. The two disciples, apostles, seated closest to Jesus at the triclinium at the Last Supper, which was a Paschal meal, was John, who loved him most, and Judas, who loved him least. But nobody knew it was Judas. Nobody except Judas and Jesus. The Antichrist is going to be very, very good at holding his cards close to his chest. If possible, the elect will be deceived. We are going to be astonished as to who it is. It will be somebody we did not expect. But that is not our subject now. I only point it out relative to the Paschal meal. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see it, I will pass over. This is where we. Someone asked me this. Chris asked me this in Poland. Yet the term Pascha, Pascha, which may be of Egyptian origin, it means to pass over. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The striking of the land of Egypt corresponds to the wrath of God being poured out. It corresponds to the wrath of God being poured out, okay? Um, we are not appointed unto wrath. Now, this day will be a memorial to you. It shall be celebrated as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance, and Jewish families do so. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. And whoever eats anything from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Let's begin. This has a meaning for Israel and the Jews. It has a meaning for the first coming of Christ, his crucifixion. Okay. 
and his resurrection that follows it. And it has a coming for the second coming, uh, meaning for the second coming of Christ. But it also has a week-to-week, day-to-day meaning for all of us. Look with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember, 1 Corinthians is the most paschal, the most paschal Passover focus of the epistles. Verse 6, Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the entire lump of dough? Therefore, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new. Uh, clean out a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. To this day, dough in the Middle East is made with a sourdough method. Yeast spores biologically multiply very quickly. The person doing the baking, usually a wife, takes a lump of dough from the batter before it's baked rolls it into a ball, and puts it into the batter of the next loaf going to be baked. And then before that is baked, she takes a lump of dough, rolls it into a ball, and puts it into the next one. That goes on in the Middle East to this very day. Okay, Sin goes from generation to generation, and as we've said many times, your boasting is not good. Leaven is a picture of sin, but it's especially a picture of the seminal sin Pride. Pride is the sin that gives rise to other sin. Satan wanted to be God. His first sin in eternity was pride. Man's first sin. Seeing it was good to make one wise. Man, you can be like God. Man's first sin was pride. Underneath the sins that we battle with all of us. Underneath unrighteous anger, lust, greed, under those things are always pride. Pride is the sin that gives rise to other sin. Now, the Paschal lamb had no sin. And of course, the matzah, the unleavened bread that is striped and pierced, by his stripes we are healed. Jesus had no sin. But we see here, get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the leaven. Now again, this is the most Paschal of the epistles, and it deals with the subject on the centrality of the Lord's Supper more than any other epistle. Look with me to 1 Corinthians 11, please. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. This corresponds to the bedichat chametz, the search for leaven, that goes on in a Jewish home before the Passover is celebrated. Get rid of the leaven before you eat the Passover. Verse 29, he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. We've talked about this before. The Protestant reformers had been Roman Catholic clergy who became Christians. They came to understand that salvation was by faith. It was all based on grace. Okay. And the authority of scripture superseded the authority of tradition. And they were, of course, aware of the corruption of the medieval papacy that endures to this very day. I just read a news clip just this afternoon here in Britain where the present pope told the transgender person who wrote him, uh, who was struggling with his 
trying to reconcile Christianity, his, his ostensibly his beliefs, with 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 his sexual orientation, uh, and 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 this this Pope Francis told him, God loves loves us just the way we are. <laughs> no mention of the need for repentance. Yeah, God does love you, but He doesn't love you the way you are. <laughs> he loves you despite the way you are, and he wants you to repent. And this kind of corruption and lies that Roman Catholicism and other false religions are built on endure to this very day. But in order not to be identified with the Roman Catholicism that they came from, the medieval Romanism they came from, the reformers had ideas of the Lord's Supper that were not scriptural themselves. They made the mistake of correcting error with error instead of error with truth. We've talked about this last week and in other teachings. But another thing they did was this. They downplayed the importance of it because they did not want to propagate the idea of transubstantiation, where bread and wine would become the protoplasmic body and blood of Jesus Christ under the appearances of bread and wine. There's this whole crazy belief based on it scientifically debunked and disproven Aristotle's theory of accidents that Thomas Aquinas used to establish the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation in its present form. But I digress. And anyway, because they didn't want to say it was Christ incarnate, that it was the return of Jesus, they didn't want to get into the idolatry and the cannibalism of the mass. They downplayed its importance not taking it house to house, week to week, as the early Christians did on a weekly basis or whatever. But they, the early Christians did it in things called agapes, love feasts. We see this in June. Okay, We see they eat and drink judgment to themselves. For this reason, many are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now, it's not talking about the loss of salvation because it uses the term sleep, not death. But a believer who takes the Lord's Supper habitually with unconfessed sin in their life, a believer who takes the Lord's Supper habitually with unconfessed sin in their life can become physically ill as a result. This is not to say all illness comes from this sin or any sin, but sin can result in illness. We see this in James. We see this in uh, Psalm 32 and so forth. Sin can result in illness. And defiling the Lord's table, taking the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin, is something that can indeed result in physical illness. And it can even result in reduced longevity. Reduced longevity. You cut short your natural lifespan. Now, it's not saying that they're going to go to hell. It uses the term sleep. But you can die before your time. I know believers who have died before their time. If they didn't do the things they did, they would still be alive and serving the Lord. They'd be with their families and their friends. Their ministries would have continued. But they died before their time. Now, when this happens, it's not only in, judge it's not only in judgment. It is in mercy. It's the Lord preventing them from going completely off the rails. <laughs> from preventing them from backsliding and going completely off the rails. And the, 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 the potential loss of salvation. The Lord would rather take someone than see them be eternally lost. The Lord does not like to save people to lose them.
Now, this again is another subject. It's not our subject tonight. We only mentioned it in passing. Very briefly, 1 Corinthians 5, the same epistle. We just looked. We have this person doing something of a sexual nature that even pagans wouldn't do. And he's having sexual relations with his father's wife. May have been his stepmother, some scholars think. Be that as it may, uh, Paul says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan. This is one of the meanings of binding and loosing. One of the meanings. For the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now this tells us two things. The theoretical possibility of an unrepentant backslider doing something that gross. And you have to read into the text, this person was not a believer. Paul speaks of him as, as, as he's among us. The theoretical possibility of this person being eternally lost is there. But rather than that happen, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to give him over to Satan to de destroy his flesh rather than he be eternally lost. So the first thing we understand is the theoretical possibility of being eternally lost is there. But secondly, the good shepherd leaves the 99 for the one. Jesus doesn't like to save people in order to lose them. He will actually curtail their biological life to bring them to re repentance rather than see them be eternally lost. Okay? So this is not the perseverance of the saints, of course, but it is the perseverance of the Lord. The Lord does not like to save people to lose them. He leaves the 99 for the one. Backsliders come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes after them to get them back. That is true. But it may come to a situation that rather than see them be eternally lost, the Lord will cut their life short. The Lord will cut their life short. I had a dear friend, close friend, who went into severe doctrinal error, and he got worse and worse, and he became my enemy over it and the enemy of a lot of other people uh, in his own church and so forth. And the Lord took him. Well, there are a number of us who knew him. I'm, I'm not the only one. In fact, I'm not even the first one, but we believe the Lord took him to stop him from going off any further. He had gone into error, and he was going further into error. Um, these things can happen. Now, if you take the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in a habitual manner, it can result in frail health. The Lord can use afflictions of health to try to get us to repent as a way of correction. However, if somebody persists in it and still does it, and they take the Lord's Supper, <laughs> they could give up the ghost before their time to check out. They could give up the ghost. It can actually happen. That's how serious the Lord's Supper is. And one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to keep us in repentance mode. We need to confess our sin before we come to the Lord's table and to reconcile with each other to the extent possible. But let's continue looking now, okay, at the 12th chapter of Exodus. Anyone who does this is living very, very dangerous. 
You are defiling the Lord's Passover. You have not removed the leaven. You're living dangerously. If you do that chronically and habitually, you're living dangerously. It continues. I'll go through the land and strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The only reason it doesn't happen to the Hebrews at the firstborn is because God, of course, as we said last week, gave his firstborn in our place. Okay, God's firstborn was given in our place, but it does happen to the Egyptians. Now, the fact that it was the firstborn in the culture and in the legal systems of the ancient Near East, including scripture, but even the Egyptians and other cultures, being the firstborn son was a big deal, was a very big deal, legally and socially, and in terms of inheritance, and in terms of um, who's going to be the, the king, the next pharaoh, and so forth. Your, your most precious asset your most precious asset was your firstborn. That was your future. Well, when God gave his son in our place, he gave his most, his most precious asset. When Jesus took our sin and went to the cross, God took our most precious asset, his only begotten son, his only begotten son. Um, you have to understand this. I know of a case, well, some of us, several of us do, and it's no secret. We're talking about Anton Bosch. He is a uh, adoptionist. Anton Bosch is an adoptionist. Now, this is an ancient heresy. Now, there are different kinds of adoptionism. One kind is baptismal adoptionism, which says that Jesus became the Son of God at his baptism with John the Baptist. When God said, this is my beloved Son, that at that point, Jesus became God's son, okay? Anton Bosch is another kind. There, there are different kinds called an incarnational adoptionist. He believes that Jesus became the son of God at the incarnation when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive that that's when he became the son of God. Now, some adoptionists do not deny the deity of Christ. Anton Borsch does not deny the deity of Christ. As far as I know, he affirms the eternal deity of Christ. What he denies is the eternal sonship of Christ. He says that Jesus was God in eternity, but not always God's son. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. You give your firstborn. You give your most important asset. The thing, the one you value and cherish and love most is what you give. Any parent who had a baby, okay, and say you have a, your, your firstborn ba baby is a, a boy, you, you, that's just a little hint, a little hint of, of what it meant to God. Um, we made it as image of likeness. It's just a very infinitesimal hint of it, but it, it's that. So when you deny the eternal sonship of Jesus, the firstborn, the monogenes, the eternal monogenes, you're fooling around with the gospel. You're fooling around with the gospel. If he was not the eternal son of God and the firstborn of the father, not just biologically, but that's who he was. 
we see in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, um, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. What is his name? What is his son's name? Um, but of the son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever. Jesus was the son of God in eternity before he was conceived of the Holy Spirit with Mary, with Miriam. He was always the son of God. Of course, Anton Borst denies this. Now, it had to be the firstborn to take the sin, you see. It had to be this firstborn. He's, what he believes is, is it's very, very, it, well, it's heretical. It's, it's, you'd have to say it's heretical, but he believes it. And there's people who listen to him. Unfortunately, now uh, I only mention it because the, the, to explain the importance of the firstborn, of the priority of the firstborn, and the value and the uniqueness of the firstborn son. Okay, so we go on. You're to celebrate it continually. Okay, verse fourteen. It'll be a memorial for you. You shall celebrate it as a feast. Notice it's a memorial. Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Roman Catholicism and certain other kindred cultic sects, counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit Christian sects, Roman Catholicism, others that believe in transubstantiation, uh, and catechetical Lutheranism, not all Lutherans, but catechetical Lutherans border on it. High Anglicans, high, high Church Episcopalians, the who have the Mass and the sacramentalism, sacramentalism, they have the same idea, okay? It's not a memorial. He dies again. Jesus dies again sacramentally. It's the same sacrifice as Calvary. Jesus has to continue to die. Now, when we studied Hebrews, we looked how Hebrews and, and First Peter tells us repeatedly, no, he dies once and for all in the perfect sacrifice. Once and for all in the perfect sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is a memorial, a very serious memorial, but it is a memorial. And of course, it is also a testimony of the future, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a appetizer, a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, but I'm only touching on that insofar as it relates to the present text. Okay. On the first day, uh, seventh day, you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your house. You have to get rid of it. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Okay. Now, you understand we can extrapolate from this. If we take the Lord's Supper once a week, <laughs> it means we should be dealing with pride and sin <laughs> every day until the next time we take the Lord's Supper. <laughs> on the first day, you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh. No work shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. There are many Passovers that Orthodox Jews have all during the week. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations 
as a permanent ordinance. Now, of course, we do this uh, with communion as believers, with the Lord's Supper. In the first month, on the 14th day, that's Passover of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's an alien or a native of the land. And again, this directly connects with 1 Corinthians 11. Those who defile the Lord's table. They take the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin. Now notice this. Notice this. Before they could take the Lord's Supper, before they could flee Egypt, they had to get rid of the leaven. I heard a story from Utah this past week, talking to a Christian friend in Utah. She lives there. And there's not many Christians there. Most people are Mormons. But she goes to a Baptist church where the pastor is a Calvinist because she doesn't have a lot of choice. There's just not that many so-called evangelical churches in a place like Utah. Most people are Mormons. And she got in trouble in the church because she said, we have to repent and accept Jesus. And the Reformed pastor, the Calvinistic pastor, this Calvinist, was very angry at it, very angry. And he said, no, that's works. <laughs> Repentance is works. We don't have to repent to get saved. Now understand, of course, what Calvinism does. They believe in spontaneous regeneration. They don't believe that you have to have faith in the completed work of Jesus to become a Christian. They believe God regenerates you, and then you get faith afterwards. <laughs> you get faith to believe the gospel after God automatically makes you born again, and there's no repentance. This is a false gospel. I'm not saying all Calvinists believe a false gospel. I'm not saying that they're not saved. But the classical idea of there's no need for repentance, and God makes somebody born again without any repentance or any faith. That is a false gospel. A false gospel. So, so far we've looked at the hyper-Calvinism and its perversion of the gospel, perverted understanding of the gospel. And we have looked at adoptionism and its perverted understanding of the gospel. This chapter 12 of Exodus is pivotal pivotal in understanding the Old Testament background of the gospel. You cannot correctly understand the New Testament presentation of the gospel unless you understand it as the fulfillment of the Passover. Unless you understand Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover, as the Lamb of God, and as the, the goat. Unless you understand that, you can't understand the gospel. The New Testament gospel, to be really understood, must be understood in light of the Old Testament. That is the Paschal background of the death and resurrection of Jesus and of the Christian life. And these things, of course, point ahead to his return additionally. 
This chapter is very, very important. You will have a very limited, incomplete, you will have an incomplete understanding of the gospel as presented in the New Testament unless you understand it in light of Exodus chapter 12. Okay? Unless you understand it in light of Exodus chapter 12. Now, that's not to say you have to have a Bible study with somebody who wants to get saved and teach Exodus chapter 12. All they have to know is that Jesus came and he had no sin and he died in their place and he rose to give them eternal life. That's all they have to know to get saved. But once they get saved, they have to become disciples, not converts. And the two things that need to happen first, the two things that need to happen first when somebody is first born again is A, believer's baptism. That's the first step of discipleship. And B, which relates to chapter 13 of Exodus, and B, they have to understand Jesus as the Passover lamb. Okay? Those are the first things you need to teach new believers. You look at John's gospel, the most basic of the gospels, yet the deepest of the gospels. It's remarkable. John's gospel is the most basic of the gospels, yet it's the most theologically deep of the gospels at the same time. What does it begin by talking about? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Right from the beginning. In Christian discipleship, when somebody gets saved, baptism and then understanding the Passover, the need to get rid of the leaven, the need to understand the lamb was without blemish, that Jesus had no sin to take ours, that he was the eternal son of God, and so forth. Well, let's go on. This memorial. Verse 24, you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land, which the Lord will give you, as he promised, that you shall observe this rite. And it will come about when your children shall say to you, what does this right mean to you? Then you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. When your children ask you, go to chapter 13 of Exodus. Again, no chapter divisions in the original canon. Chapter 13 of Exodus, um, read it with me, please. Verse 8, you shall tell your sons on that day, saying, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. The Lord's Supper is an object lesson to teach small children the gospel. It is an object lesson to teach small children the gospel. Children want to imitate their parents. Children want to imitate their older siblings. Why do you do this? Why do you do this? It's because of what Jesus did when he saved us out of the world. We're remembering he was the Lamb of God. God has no grandchildren, only children. Yes, the scripture does make a distinction between the children of believers and the children of non-believers. That is true until they come to the point where they must make the decision themselves. 
do not be like those Christians who with good intention but thinking with their emotions instead of their brains make the mistake of giving children the Lord's Supper when they're not born again and baptized. No, no. Have you come out of Egypt? Have you accepted the Lamb of God that his blood covered your sins? Have you come out of Egypt? In my own family, my daughter was baptized when she was six. My son was only four. Now, when children grow up in a Christian family, you can't always tell the day they were born again. You can tell the day they were baptized, but you can't tell the day they were born again, necessarily. You might, but might not. They, they come to a simple faith when they pray with their parents and they go to Sunday school and the bedtime stories are David and Goliath and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And children can come to faith at a very early age, but you couldn't put your finger on, on when they became regenerated. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, baptism is so important. Well, you can't put your finger on the day a child who grew up in a Christian family was saved necessarily. You can the day when they were buried and resurrected, the day that they were baptized. Okay. Well, my son, we, we, once a year we had the Passover, and we didn't have to eat it with chicken like the religious Jews. We used lamb because we had the lamb of God. <laughs> And we had the matzah. And during, once a year, we took the Lord's Supper at home as a family at Passover, at Passover during the Seder. And we did the Haggadah and we sang the songs and so forth. And, you know, it's very meaningful for, 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 for families of believing Jews. And we take the Lord's Supper and my little son, that four, he would see his father do it. Little boys want to be like the father. He sees his mother do it. He sees his older sister do it. But he can't do it. Well, that makes him feel terrible. How could that's emotional cruelty to a child? You're making him feel like he's not a member of the family. Well, he's not a member of the family eternally. He must come to a saving knowledge of the truth. God wants that kid saved. The Lord's Supper is a way that God has ordained for us to teach the gospel to small children, to understand their need for salvation, their need for repentance, their need for the blood of the Lamb. It's the way God has ordained to do it. It's intentional that they are semi-ostracized. They think, what's wrong with me? Why can't I have it? What's wrong with you is sin. What's wrong with you is what's wrong with all of us. You have to accept Yeshua. You have to accept Jesus. Now, this is an important thing. And very few churches understand this and get it right. Very few churches understand this and get it right. Very few. And again, I would reiterate, be very, very careful. I, I would say ignore. Ignore people who say you don't have to repent to get saved. <laughs> Look at Peter's charisma. Look at the book of Acts. What did Peter... Repent and be baptized. Repent. And you'll get the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Calvinism is a mound of rubbish. 
the higher the mound, the more disgusting it is. Moderate Calvinism is not right, but it's not as wrong as hyper-Calvinism. <laughs> the more Calvinistic something is, the more wrong it is. The more Calvinistic a church is, the more wrong it is. The more Calvinistic a preacher is, the more wrong he is. You have moderate Calvinists, like, uh, let's see, someone like uh, Charles Spurgeon. Oh, Lord, save thy elect. Okay. But then he prayed, please elect more. Well, William Carey, the Baptist missionary who founded Baptist missions, and the Baptist convention was against him in England. If the Lord wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. That's what they told him when he wanted to go to India to be a missionary. Uh, the hyper-Calvinists turned on the moderate ones. Okay, and that happened with Spurgeon. Um, the more Calvinistic someone is, the more wrong they are. The more Calvinistic a church is, the more wrong it is. We do not have the same differences with modern Cal with moderate Calvinists in this in the category of Charles Spurgeon or William Carey, of course, that we do with the extreme Calvinists. those who believe that God created people to go to hell to torture them forever and that you get born again because God does it without you responding to his grace by repentance and faith. Nonetheless, we only touch on these things relative to the text we're looking at. Okay. What does this right mean to you? You'll tell your children. We'll say to you, what does this right mean to you? It's the Passover, the sacrifice in verse 27. Okay. He passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. Notice, church begins in the home. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, begins with him, who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The firstborn of everyone and everything except the Hebrews, because the firstborn of the father is prefigured by the lamb who died in their place came about at midnight that this happened. Verse 30, And Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. It afflicted every home. Then he called for Moses and Aaron. Now Moses and Aaron said, We're not going to come to you again. We have nothing further to say to you. Remember after the previous plague. Now Pharaoh comes to them. Now Pharaoh comes to them. They wouldn't go to him anymore. We're finished with you. Now he comes to them. He called for Moses and Aaron. Rise up, get up from among the people, both you and your sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. Oh, boy. And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. 
So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes and on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. For they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now this vaguely foreshadows something that's going to happen to Israel and the Jews after the rapture and resurrection, after the parousia. But again, we only mention it very briefly in passing. They take the articles of gold and silver. Remember, the meek shall inherit the earth. We are the heirs. The Lord made the earth for those who love him. If we love him, we get this world and its riches for a thousand years before eternity. A thousand years before the eternal blessings. Okay. The world gets nothing. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. Scholars are divided about the exact place of the crossing. The exact place of the crossing. It is a complicated issue. I'm not going to look at it this week. But this is the first thing they look at. I've been to what they believe is Ramses, which is up in the Nile Delta. But after that, it becomes more difficult to pinpoint exact locations. And a mixed multitude also went up with them, along with the flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock in verse 38. And they baked the dough which they had bought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread. For it had not become leavened, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. There'll always be grain in the famine for the faithful people of God one way or another. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to an end at, at 430 years to the very day. Going back to the to what happened with, with, with Jacob and Joseph. To the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. 430 years. That, that is like something in the 1600s. Imagine something from the year 1600. It is a night to be observed for the Lord for having brought them out from the land of Egypt this night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Jews could never be completely assimilated. Jews could never be completely assimilated. Okay. Hitler went on a hunt. If you had one Jewish grandparent, they would arrest you. It was a crime. Okay. After hundreds of years, they still did not go into the mainstream. Even though the Torah had not yet been given. God preserved their identity. Believers are the same. It doesn't matter for how many generations Christians live in a given country, like the United States. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter. They keep their own identity that goes beyond the national identity, which is not to discourage patriotism, but it is to say that our ultimate citizenship is beyond this fallen world. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat it. The Lord's Supper is only for believers. It is not for unsaved people. Every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, he may eat it. A non-Jew may eat it if he's circumcised. Anybody, circumcision is, of course, circumcision of the heart. It's a figure of circumcision of the heart. Moses tells us this. It's a picture of, of conversion and salvation. Okay. Anybody can believe and convert and believe. A sojourner, a hired servant, shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You're not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor to break any bone of it. Now, remember when Jesus was on the cross? In order to stop the diaphragm from being able to expand, expand and to cause death by suffocation, they would break the legs of the prisoners. They broke the legs of the Two malefactors on either side of Jesus, but they did not break his legs. He was already dead. He's the Lamb of God. Not a, none of his bones had to be broken. Now, bones have to do with basic structure. Basic structure. The basic structure of the scriptures, the basic structure of Israel. If you look at the valley of dry bones, the soft tissue is gone. The muscle tissue is gone. Everything is gone. But bone tissue survives thousands of years. In some cases, skeletal remains can survive centuries and centuries if, if they're not exposed to too much oxygen. Um, the bones are there. The bones are there. Things can be different, but the basic structure will still be there. The basic structure of biblical Christianity will always exist. The basic structure of Jewish identity will always exist. The bones will not be broken. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover of the Lord, let his males be circumcised. Let them come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Notice that Levitical Judaism was not based on race. Any sojourner from any nation who came and put their faith in the God of Israel and underwent conversion. Remember, Abraham was a Gentile who God converted to Judaism. Any non-Jew who put their faith in the God of Israel and was circumcised was counted as being among the people. They're not a stranger anymore. He shall be like a native of the land. In the new covenant, although the natural branches are the Jews, non-Jews who have faith in the Jewish Messiah and are grafted into the natural olive tree are in the sight of God spiritually co-valid to any Jew. They may be culturally different, they may be genetically different, but they are spiritually no different. They are no different. Look at it. 
You shall be like a native of the land. Now, this is not applied to the land of Israel now, but in the millennium it will. Believers will worship there. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Doesn't matter Jew or non-Jew. They must be converted. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And it came about on that same day that the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Okay. We will continue next week looking at chapter 13 with the consecration of the firstborn. But I emphasize, I don't know of any chapter in the Old Testament that is more important and more essential in correctly understanding the gospel than Exodus 12. If someone does not understand Exodus 12 and the Passover, they will at best have a limited understanding of the gospel and quite possibly a distorted or wrong understanding of the gospel. Exodus 12 is absolutely, absolutely indispensable in its importance. After getting baptized, it is the first thing we should teach newly saved people about Jesus being the Lamb and the blood of the Lamb and the Lamb of God, about the problems of leaven, about the problems of unbelief. Okay. This chapter that we looked at tonight is absolutely, absolutely crucial, vital to our understanding as Christians.